Hi, good morning and welcome. This is Seek Sustainable Japan, and this is our weekly sub-series between two consultants. I'm JJ Walsh here in Hiroshima, Japan. Hi, and I'm Tova Kinooka in Yokohama, just outside Tokyo. And every week we try to share uh, new ideas or articles or news stories or events. And then at the end of the broadcast, we usually give a book recommendation, something that we've been reading. Kind of connected to sustainability in terms of borderless, but most of our content is focused on Japan. Wouldn't you say, Tova? Yeah, I think so. That's where we are. That's, that's our, our world at the moment, isn't it? Can't go anywhere yeah. else. Absolutely. Um, Tuffa, do you want to start? You had an interesting article about chocolate, everybody's favorite, but there is like a darker side to think about, right? There is a darker side and we're not talking about dark chocolate. So for me, I, I'm a lifelong chocoholic, um, as anyone who knows me knows. Um, but uh, and at the moment, we're seeing it everywhere, right? We've got Valentine's Day coming up. The shops are full of it. Easter will be following on after that. Maybe not so big here, but certainly big elsewhere. Um, and it's a time when you know, the chocolate makers sell an awful lot of chocolate. But as you can see from the title there, it's incredibly damaging to the environment. And actually, when you look at the um, the, the footprint or the uh, greenhouse gas emissions of chocolate compared to other categories of food, it comes just after red meat. It's number five on a list of sort of um, widely eaten food categories, um, which is really quite shocking. And I think a lot of people perhaps don't realize. Um, if you look at why that is, chocolate, uh, the cocoa beans, the, the pods are grown usually in um, monocrops. So there's a lot of um, connection with deforestation where large areas of uh, rainforest, for example, are cleared. Um, to grow the, the chocolate crops. That also leads to you know, loss of biodiversity. Um, it degrades the soils, so you get sort of having to use more and more fertilizers. You then get chemical pollution. There's the whole you know, environmental impact side of it. Plus, of course, chocolate often includes, well, generally includes milk, sugar, um, cane sugar, um, palm oil as well. So you've got you know, the, the knock-on effects um, from those ingredients as well. So it's pretty bad stuff. And the difficulty is a lot of chocolate um, that the big chocolate makers use um, comes from, you know, mainly sort of uh, Western Africa or certain parts of South America around Brazil, Ecuador, etc. Um, and they're often come uh, produced by smallholders, okay, but then um, they come to the chocolate producer through at least one sort of middleman, sometimes several layers. So it's very, very hard to trace really where has this chocolate come from? Where did your cocoa beans originate? Um, and so it's very hard to know, even when companies are trying really, really hard, it's very difficult to know really are, you know, can you guarantee this has been produced ethically? Can you guarantee that, you know, it's not, being produced on you know cleared areas of, of virgin rainforest land and and so on it's really difficult to to trace that um and then of course you've got the whole child labor side as well slavery child labor is a huge issue in chocolate production as it is in coffee and um, possibly worse in chocolate and um, there's less accountability and traceability still in the chocolate 
um, industry. So there's a whole um, range of, of terrifying things um, that many people often don't realize. And you might see a sign saying sort of organic or fair trade, but it's very difficult to really verify that, particularly um, with the, the bigger um, chocolate makers. So you're showing here people trees. So this is one that, you know, is a bean to bar, I believe it, and tries a lot harder to um, what well, is able to trace it right back to where the beans come from. So if you are buying chocolate for Valentine's Day or, or Easter or, or just generally for me, it's a, a once a week habit. I try and keep it to that. Um, then you really ought to be looking for this bean to bar because then you can guarantee that it has come from a certified source. So uh, lots to think about there. Um, and we have power as consumers. We really hold the power and the companies that produce it that at the moment aren't making enough effort to, to trace down through are not going to change unless we as consumers change our habits. So it's uh, food for thought in many ways. Yeah, it's a great thing to to be a little bit more aware of when you're shopping and realize that there are better options such as People Tree. Yeah. They make fantastic chocolate. I'm so lucky it's in my local like macrobiotic organic section of my supermarket now. Yes, yeah, I did a, a back and forth interview with uh, Sophia Mini, who started People Tree oh, years wow. ago, like over 10 years ago. And one of the things that she said is that she was hoping that her company wouldn't be needed, that a fair trade for clothing or chocolate mm. would just be normal and everybody would be doing it. There would be no reason to keep going. Well, that has not been the case. Um, so I really, I really respect how long she's been at it in Japan and the UK. Mm -hmm. And recently, they also have been starting um, to offer vegan chocolate, which is very rare in Japan. So not only you have the fair trade, but also you have the plant-based chocolate, which is very hard to find usually. So they're using like coconut milk or, or cashew nuts instead of the animal dairy, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's going to have a, a huge, you know, positive impact on obviously the overall carbon footprint of the uh, of the product. So if you look for vegan chocolate and sometimes it tastes a little different and it's about sort of learning to to enjoy that taste. Um, certainly it took me a little while to, to find one the coconut um, oil ones I wasn't so keen on, but ones like you say made with cashew or soy, um, I find it sort of closer to maybe what I'm used to and what I really like. So experiment a bit, but there are you know more and more options coming out now, which is is really great to see. And one other, still on the subject of chocolate, if I may, there's one other company I'd really like to highlight on a much more local level. Um, so a few weeks back, I was in, or a few months back now, I was in Yokohama, and um, my local town and um saw came across a small company called chocolabo and uh, i was curious it was a new chocolate shop of course i had to go in and have a look um and i was lucky enough that that day the the founder of the company just happened to be in the shop approached me and started chatting in english which was a huge surprise um and it turns out that it's it's a very small sort of artisan chocolate maker just based in the the kanagawa area at the moment but beginning to sell their products they've got them online as you can see here but also in some of the larger department stores and stuff and this whole company started when the the founder's son who is disabled um was unable to find a, a decent job 
when he finished school and the um the founder at the time was working in banking was very frustrated and see you know could see that his son had a lot of value to offer but just wasn't being given the opportunity to to do decent work um he was very frustrated like this so he set up this chocolate company and it's a social business um they most of the people they employ have some kind of physical or mental disabilities but they are employed in decent work they're paid a fair wage um and they're incredibly creative and they produce this wonderful chocolate um they all the the packaging is designed by them they're also very good on the environmental side of of you know being careful about their packaging, minimal plastic and so on. Um, and they also source their beans ethically and are very careful to, to find out where those come from and how they're produced. So the whole concept of the company is just wonderful. And I was really you know, fortunate to just find out that backstory behind it when I went in there. So that's definitely my favorite chocolate brand at the moment, Chocolabo. They have wonderful single origin, origin um, chocolate from say Tanzania, Vietnam, and so on. So would highly recommend having a look at their online store if you're looking for something different that you know does good stuff. Yeah, awesome. I also have a local recommendation. Hiroshima has a wonderful vegan chocolate and direct trade, very ethical, like direct for cashew nuts, for the cocoa beans, for a lot of the products that they, they import they have a direct trade agreement with the local communities that grow it. And it's called Ushio Chocolate. And uh, there is a wide range of, of interesting and really delicious flavors. And a lot of women work at this business. And uh, they, they have such a creative design. So their cashew nuts come from Vietnam. They uh, make sure to design their products with paper and all the designs are designed by women and they hire a lot of women as part of their team. So there's a lot of gender empowerment uh, involved with the business as well. So yeah, wonderful company. Fantastic, I'm making a note of that. We'll be having a look. <laughs> Yeah, great. Uh, so moving on, well, let's continue on the gender mm -hmm. equity theme, because I had a really interesting conversation yesterday with Dr. Wes Robinson, and his specialty is looking at the Japanese written script and how the diverse use of kanji, hiragana, and katakana in different ways over the years can portray differences that you might not realize, uh, depending on uh, representing a character in a manga story as flamboyant or people who are uh, non-binary might create certain kinds of writing to show that they're not, uh, they're a part of a special group as a groupism. Um, there were so many interesting takeaways. And he, he was looking a lot at how the three types of Japanese are often used in mm -hmm. the same way. And if you just used katakana, or if you just used hiragana, or just kanji, you would have a very different impression than when you use it in a balanced way. And I, I love this focus of how the SDGs number five for gender has mm -hmm. been has been done because the whole idea of using the katakana gender 
has really created kind of a movement towards thinking about um, people who are non-binary, not just women and yeah. men, but gender mm -hmm. in a wider sense. It's not just about uh, women empowerment. It's it's much bigger and wider mm -hmm. conversation, like the SDG gender equity as was originally mm -hmm. intended. But this was kind of a new word used in Japanese and use of gender in katakana, I think, has been a very positive movement instead of yeah. using maybe a, a kanji version. So that was yeah. really interesting. That is interesting, isn't it? Because I know, um, you know, I, I've had discussions with my husband over the years over which which word or kanji, you know, I feel comfortable with him using um, for me when he's referring to me as his wife, um, because there are different ways to write it in Japanese, different ways to say it, and some of them, when you look at the meaning, I, I'm really not very comfortable. For example, kanai, meaning sort of her in the house. Um, who stays in the house. And when you look at the, the meaning of the actual kanji like that, um, you know, it can be used in a very um, sort of with good intentions, say, or certainly with no, no negative intentions. But when you look at the meaning and where that's come from, um, I'm really not comfortable with that you know, being referred to as kanai. So it, it's really interesting to hear these stories behind the, the words and how, you know, using different kanji or, or using hiragana or katakana instead can actually imply a very, very different meaning and perhaps, you know, much more inclusive and open. So that's fascinating. Yeah. And there were also connections to like marketing and how a company can clearly communicate and mm -hmm. how the importance of testing how you want to communicate. Right. Like so there's yeah. co some companies in Japan, uh, for example, he gave the example of Starbucks and Starbucks, instead of using on one of their posters, Kohi in Katakana, mm -hmm. they chose to use the kanji that you often see for kind for coffee okay. and uh, you you see it in japan at like higher higher quality yeah. like small mm -hmm. artisan shops or something right yeah and he uh heard from some japanese people that they didn't like that they didn't like that starbucks was using that kanji they felt it was a bit like putting on airs a little bit too mm -hmm. pompous so, right Thinking how your audience is perceiving mm. these choices that you're making and how you're communicating is also a very interesting aspect of that, right? Very much so. I mean, you're just reminding me now that last year we worked on a um, very big uh, project with a, a Japanese coffee company, um, and we were working with the the Japan operations, the headquarters here, but also their European operations, which are actually bigger in terms of, of volume of, of trade. Um, and we, the sustainability report, we were doing the materiality process for them, you know, finding out uh, what are their key issues, what do they need to focus on, then moving into ambition setting. And at the end of each phase, we had to present the report in Japanese to the family, the owners of the, this family company. Um, and that the translation was so hard because you couldn't just do it literally. Um, the reports were written in English to begin with. And for example, simple things like the word sustainability, you know, there is a word in Japanese. You can use jizoku kanose, um, there's kanji for it. But the, the Japanese headquarters team were not comfortable with that and said, no, 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 we want to use katakana sustainability because we feel that 
sort of better encompasses what we're trying to get across here, perhaps wouldn't be understood widely enough by people who don't have a sustainability background. So, you know, we want yeah, to go. We, we talked about that. We talked yeah. about that at the end. Right. And I, I, uh, one of his ways to judge how the audience is perceiving these choices that companies are making as they launch a new brand, for example, mm -hmm. uh, he gave an example of chairs, how if you search Google images for uh, kanji or katakana, or hiragana for the word chair in Japanese, you have very different representations. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I did the same thing for sustainability. You search for sustainability in kanji, only get official SDG or government information. Mm -hmm. You search in katakana, you get a much more diverse uh, group of grassroots organizations, businesses, as well as government. So then yeah. I was like, okay, so that's what I want to use, right? <laughs> so that was that was so interesting that you had yeah. that same discussion with someone yes. you were working with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's really made us rethink, you know, how we, we message to, um, you know, externally as well about what we're doing. So we've shifted to using the katakana sustainability rather than the kanji now, because that seems to be sort of, it, it gets across a clearer understanding of what we do. So yeah, yeah. really. But another interesting uh, kind of takeaway is he was saying, like I, I showed that if I do sustainability in hiragana, mm -hmm. I get like almost no hits. No. And of anything that I would want to target. But he said, in the way the internet works, if you do have something unique and you are trying to communicate in a different way than has been the norm, mm -hmm. having a different script might not be a bad idea. Huh. Right? Right. So that, wow. that's interesting in terms of yes, SEO yeah. or the meta tags or how the mm -hmm. internet picks up, how Google will rank your information. So mm -hmm. that gave me a, a good feeling about rebranding for Seek Sustainable Japan this year, that mm -hmm. that is a really unique hashtag. Yeah. And I have built up Seeking Sustainability Live since 2020. And so it was a big decision to change. Right. But it is. Hmm. I feel like it's is Seek Sustainable Japan is more concise and close to what I'm trying to get across, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So always, like anything with sustainability, right, Tova? Always reevaluating where you are, how you could get better, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And really just checking in with how is that messaging being received? I mean, again, that, that's such a, a core part of our work when we're working with, you know, say the, the C-suite of the company to look at how they're messaging their sustainability strategy internally as well as externally. So we, we don't deal so much with the external messaging. We've got partners who can do that very effectively. But if the, the top of the company is talking about one thing, is that really being understood throughout the company, um, you know, do people really know what this means for them and their particular function and, and role within the organization? So I think there's often not enough thought put into that. And it's just assumed that, okay, we use this word, that's a standard word, everybody will understand this. Um, but it can mean different things to different people unless you're really checking in with how is this being received? Is that the way that we want it to come across? Or do we need to, to shift our messaging a little to, to really connect with people? Um, you know, things can fall flat. So it, it's important to really sort of dig into that, I think.
Absolutely. And that ties into my next uh, thing that I wanted to talk about, about a talk I did last week with Alex K.T. Martin about In Search of Japan's Lost Wolves. And there is a discussion in one of his chapters uh, with some local conservationists who want to bring back the wolf uh, and try it maybe on an island uh, because basically the wolves are extinct. They don't mm -hmm. exist anymore, but they had a really important role in terms of balancing uh, the herbivores. Now we yes. have way too many deer and inushishi, wild boar and monkeys, which have taken over and causing havoc for any farmer trying to grow anything in the country area. But the wolves were always so good at keeping these animals in balance, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So there's good argument to bring it back. But a knee-jerk reaction by a lot of communities is not in our community. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be like stalked by wolves as I walk through forests, which used to happen. But um, what he was saying is historically, wolves never attacked people. They might mm -hmm. stalk you. Um, they might drink the urine that was stored outside the houses for fertilizer. So then the idea that wolves like salt came up, there yeah. are a lot of really interesting folklore connections too. Um, but the whole idea of you have to educate a community, you have to mm -hmm. have clear communication between all the stakeholders before you decide something like this, like reintroducing yeah. a, an, a new yeah. animal or something. Um, and I think that's similar for businesses, right? Like when a business yeah. changes to a more sustainable strategy, you have to explain to the consumer why this is good for them and mm -hmm. why they should deal with the hassle of changing, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, and, you know, back, what well, as we were saying, internally as well, for the employees, you know, if you're asking people to change their behaviors um, and you're suddenly putting KPIs on them that are related to sustainability, they need to understand why. Why is this important? How does it connect to me in my role in finance or in sales or in marketing or in, you know, whatever part of the company I'm working in? Because if you're just pushing change down from the top and saying to people, well, now we'll do it this way, um, you know, people tend to push back against change. So um, unless they really understand why and can see the benefits clearly, understand why this is necessary. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's all about education and dialogue and keeping that communication two way and, and consistent and constant. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Uh, another uh, like connected discussion I had, which is now in podcast from today, I talked with a woman, Nao Fukuoka, who talked about her original inspiration to move out to the rural countryside from years ago when she visited Tahiti. And Ooh. she was talking to people from her trip with Peace Boat and talking with people about nuclear power and radiation sickness. And she learned so much from the local people and learned about their indigenous culture philosophy about if you take from nature, you have to give back to nature. And mm -hmm. so she had this in her mind for years. And so this was kind of her reason behind moving to the countryside in Hiroshima and starting organic farming. 
and starting seminars where they invite people um, to show them it's possible to do natural farming without pesticides yeah. or artificial yeah, yeah. fertilizers. And this all came from maybe 15 years ago when she was in Tahiti. So all of these interactions, all of this knowledge, all of these seed planting that yeah. that people are doing as educators, as consultants, mm -hmm. as even community activists, it, it all pays off eventually, I think. Absolutely. And you've touched on another really key point there, I think, which is role models, having sort of demonstrated success cases of what is possible is also incredibly important. So she'd seen, you know, in Tahiti, how things were working there. And now, you know, if she's bringing people to the farm that they can understand, you know, there is another way. It doesn't have to be the way we've been doing it for the last 30, 40 years, the way we've all grown used to. Um, the same with, you know, consumer behaviors. We've all got very used to a very convenient, easy lifestyle, um, to having certain things whenever we want them and not thinking about seasonality and stuff like that. Um, so I think, you know, having role models of the, to show this is possible, there is another way of doing things and you can succeed and it's not actually that hard, um, is incredibly important, whether we're talking about products or, or farming processes, or again, in the company in terms of leadership, um, inclusivity and things like that, unless you've got people modeling that behavior, it's very hard for people to understand what, what it is and what it can be. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, it is time for our book recommendations. Uh, Tova, do you want to start? Bushido okay. Capitalism. Well, talking of role models, I think uh, the author of this book, so Sakurada Kengo-san, who is the president and CEO of Sompo Holdings Japan, which is a, a huge sort of um, care, elderly care um, insurance provider as well. Um, is he's an incredible role model. So I bought, I picked up this book at Heathrow Airport in London um, last year, coming back from visiting my mother and read it cover to cover on the plane. Um, fascinating book. So I love the fact, if you look at the subtitle here, The Code to Redefine Business for a Sustainable Future. Um, and looking at Bushido principles and um, values as a, a starting point for rethinking capitalism, rethinking how we run our businesses and how we interact between you know, businesses and societies and so on. Um, it was a really interesting read and uh, some of the things he, he highlighted there, I think are very, very important to, for, for companies to, to move towards. So collaboration over competition was something he was really uh, sort of looking at and illustrating how he, he's been doing that at Sompo, both within the organization, but also between organizations, competitors in the same industry and so on. Um, celebrating value and achievements anywhere. So smaller things, really making sure people are aware of what's happening and, and feeling appreciated and valued, connected to the company. Um, and he was talking about uh, how COVID-19 has given companies a, a chance to, to press the reset button. I know there's been a lot of discussion on this in the media, but to really recalibrate the systems. It doesn't have to be a wholesale you know, change of throw out everything we've done before, but a chance just to pause and say, okay, how, how can we recalibrate this so that the balance is better? As you've spoken about before, that balance between people, profit and planet, um, about sort of really looking very carefully at that. Um, and I really 
like the fact that you know he says okay Bushido has uh, there are plenty of flaws as well this was the code for the you know the samurai the the, the warriors of past and that there were many things which are no longer relevant to to modern life however there are a lot of deeply held values um things there sort of equality treating people um equally trust and so on that are actually very very valuable and they're here in japan they are here they're deeply rooted in japanese psyche and culture and so on um so it's i think when we're talking about sustainability and when in the work we do with organizations there's often this feeling that okay this is coming from from outside this is being pushed on us from the the un or you know from uh, sort of multinational governments um pressuring company you know other countries to to up their game to do things differently and so on but it's not you know it it is here it is deeply in there perhaps some of these things have been lost um over the years in the in the rush sort of post war to, to rebuild and that was very important japan had to rebuild but i think a lot of those incredible um strong values that think about community that think about collaboration have been pushed down but they they're not lost they are still there it's about rediscovering those and rediscovering how we can apply them in a modern context to actually you know think very long term and, and build a more sustainable future as he says in the book there so i uh, would highly recommend reading this one a really really fascinating book and very relevant wow that looks amazing i'm going to have to find that um i have two book recommendations and both of them are academic so you might want to ask your library to order it for you or your university um the first was we talked about dr wesley robertson he wrote scripting japan about a variation in how japanese is written and and the nuances that are perceived by the reader and another is it looks really scary circulating fear Ooh. now this is dr leslie nelson and she is a professor at meiji university and she's joining the talk show this week thursday uh, to talk about this but this is just a fascinating book and also a little bit pricey ask your library to buy it uh, it's a research book it's based on her phd and master's uh research into Japanese horror and how Japanese horror actually has so many connections back to social equity issues and talking about gender. So it should be a really interesting discussion, but also a very interesting book. I've been going through it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Look forward to hearing that talk about those connections. That sounds because yeah, I'm not a horror person, but I, I, it is I, it is so popular around the world, right? Japanese yeah. horror is yeah. like an internationally well-known thing that a lot of American films are are based on Japanese films. And yes, you know, yeah. it's incredible. Huh. Fantastic. And I think that's it for us today. Tova, thank you so much once again. Great discussion. Thank you. And uh, everyone, thanks for joining and join us again next week for 30 Minute Short Takes. Great. Have a good day. Bye, everyone. Bye.
I show my tears to you, I'm stronger I dropped the armor, now I'm bolder